Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. And now may I encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We continue today in our study of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and today we find ourselves in chapter 6. Now, if you were with us on Ash Wednesday, you uh, caught number seven. You caught uh, the last installment entitled Spiral. If you missed it, I encourage you to go online. If you missed any of our previous sermons, I do encourage you to catch up as one builds upon the other. But for today, the text that we have before us comes from Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Listen to these words as we and those who are in the Family Life Center tune in to Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Today we gather around what may be the most well-known story in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, the story of Noah and the flood. It sits as kind of the apex of all 11 chapters. Everything before it moves toward it. Everything after it cascades away from it. It is the apex. It is, if you will pardon the pun, the watershed story of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's almost a little like when Vader tells Luke that I am your father. Because there was some stuff that happened before that moment, and there's some stuff that happened after that moment, but it was that moment that shaped the interpretation of everything that had come before and our understanding of everything that would come afterwards. Does that analogy work for you? Does that work? So this is the watershed moment. This is kind of the apex story, and we're about to see why. But before we do, do you remember where we've been? Chapter 1 and chapter 2, we lived into this glorious story, these stories actually, multiple creation accounts that describe something God had in mind, that God envisioned a way of existence 
in which we shared life and we did life and it was so beautiful and good and right that it was, well, it was shalom, harmony, integration, love. We have said the first two chapters, we said that God's own character is like that, that God's character is Trinitarian, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, which means they are mutually uh, sub, uh, sub, submissive to and, and servant to one another. God, the Father, serves the Son who serves the Father, who serves the Spirit, who serves the Son, who serves the Father. There is this mutual sense of love and care and compassion and service to one another or community within God. And it's out of that character of God that God creates existence, hoping that in God's divine image, we might live and behave in such a way as to reflect that character in which we abide with one another and, and there is a mutual submission among us in which we care and we give mercy and compassion and acts of service all the time. And it's just natural and beautiful. But then chapter 3 comes and unravels the whole ball of yarn. Chapter 3 comes and there is this, this rupture in the relationship that God had intended. We reach for fruit that was out of bounds. And that's what always happens. There's always an Eden. And there's always a fruit. And we're always reaching and grasping that which is out of bounds. And when we do, it fractures the very vision of what God had in mind. It, it, it creates a tear in the fabric of what God had weaved together, this existence that we share. And it, it all falls apart. And we began last week looking at what life looks like after Eden when you really blow it. When you blow it, and now you're living east of Eden, and we began with Cain, and last Wednesday night we went through chapter 4 and 5 and part of 6, and we, we examined how this vision that God had for you and me to abide and live in love began to spiral, to spiral out of control. And we don't have to look long and hard to see evidence of that still today. But maybe the most clear demonstration is that verse that we just read a moment ago. Here it is again, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of the humankind or of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Now see, that phrase sets up the stage or it frames out the picture. What it, it you know... It's the prelude to the song. You pick your metaphor. It creates a readiness for the story of Noah and the flood. And because most of us are somewhat familiar with the story of Noah and the flood, or the somewhere near 100 versions of that story as told in cultures around the world, then you and I have some traditional understanding of how to tell that story. And it goes something like this. God got really angry and out of God's wrath, destroyed everything that was. Which is kind of an irresponsible way to read the text. Typically, you and I think that because everything had spun or spiraled out of control, that out of God's great wrath or rage, God destroyed everything. But I want to suggest that, the, that a closer reading of this text may reveal a different way to hear this story, especially in regard to what this story is attempting to do in the hearts of people who have had a week like we have just had. 
So to move us through today's sermon, just a few thoughts. To move us through this chapter and a little bit of the next chapter, I want to give us four words, four anchoring points to move us and help us navigate. And these words are grief, regret, rescue, reset. Grief, regret, rescue, reset. First we begin with grief. This really is a spectacular scene that opens up. When I come to this part of the Bible, it's almost in my mind as if a great curtain begins to open up on a new act. And God, the central character, comes to the very edge of the stage and looks over the cosmos and over all that God has created. Because now the first scene in this new act is to evaluate how things are going. You know, God had already done that once before in chapter 1 and 2, hadn't he? At the, all through the, the acts of creation in chapters 1 and 2, after each of the seven acts of creation, God would come to the end of each act, and, and after God had separated light from dark and called the light day and the dark night, God would say, ah, good. After he separated the wet stuff from the dry stuff, made dry land appear or emerge from the wet, he would see it and say, ah, good. After every act of creation, making blue things and green things and things that flew and things that swam and things that slivered and things that spoke and walked upright like you and me. And at the end of all seven days of creation, at the end of six days of creation, he sees at the culmination with the creation of the human being, he looks out on the precipice of divine evaluation and says, this is very good. Now the curtain closes, and as it opens back up, it's chapter 6. And now he's looked out, and we've had about four or five chapters in between, and civilizations have developed and become more sophisticated, and they have developed and moved and migrated around the earth, and they have spiraled in their migration to debauchery and decay and disobedience. And God steps once more to the precipice of divine evaluation and says, this is not good. This is not good. There are some words that are used in this part of the text, chapter 6. A couple of words in particular that help us understand what God, what the writer would say that God was feeling in the heart of God, one of the words in Hebrew is naham. Naham is a word that means sorry, because we came to that place where it said I, I, God was sorry that he had made humankind. But literally, what naham means is sorry with a deep regret, a repentance, a change of mind. That God was so grieved, so sorry was God when God looked out over the condition of what had become of God's great vision. That God was grieved to the point of having a change of mind. Now don't let that phrase make you uncomfortable. You know, those of us who inherited our theology, at least from the Western trajectory, as those who inherited our theology from the West, 
we tend to anchor our beliefs in things like the immutability of God, which means the, the, the never-changingness of God, the sense that God is the same. You can finish it with me, can't you? God is the same yesterday, today, and when? And forever. And th that is absolutely true. In fact, to the core of my belief, I believe that God's character and who God is and how God is is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is an ever-present help in time of trouble changing no, not despite our ever-changing circumstances, God is steady and present. And, and yet the Hebrews, the Hebrews had no problem whatsoever describing God as experiencing this life with us and experiencing a change of heart, a change of mind, and achan, or nacham, uh, 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 nacham, is the word, somebody needs to say kazuntad or bless you or something. <laughs> Naham, Naham is a word that means I am grieved to the point I've changed my mind. That word is used in the Hebrew Bible 30 times. 30 times it's used. But did you know that 24 out of the 30 times that it's used, it's used in reference to God? experiencing something, changing the mind about something. It's not the only word that's used in this phrase that we just read. God was not only sorry that God had made humankind, but he grieved him to his heart. The word for grieve there in Hebrew is atzav. Atzav literally means grieved. It means the kind of grief that comes like an anguishing woman giving birth, where there is excruciating pain. Loud shrills of, of suffering and screaming, and breathlessness. Can you, for just a moment, imagine the moment of a woman in the throes of childbirth? That's achav, or atzav. Atzav is a word that describes what was happening in the heart of God. When God looks over all that God had created and, and to see the condition of it now, the condition that it has become, God was grieved to the point that there was this anguishing, screaming, breathlessness about God. Now, those are powerful words. They're strong images, aren't they? They help us to understand the impact of what the writer's trying to make us feel when, when we see that God looks over the thing that has fallen apart. But in many ways, it's not strong enough because there's, even if you use the image of a woman screaming or travailing in childbirth, there is still in that whole image the idea that a baby could still be on the way, which is a hopeful image, which is a positive image, right? That there's, there's life coming after this. I was thinking, what can we do to try to understand um, the true impact of atzav in this text? What image would we use? And then Wednesday happened. And some of my friends did some blogging, and one in particular um, used an image that has now become popular, and maybe you've seen it. Would you take a look at this moment? Just look for a moment, will you? Presumably a couple of mothers in deep grief behind, a dad maybe checking, checking a, an update, another woman behind in complete shock. But, but I, what I want you to, and I, and I share this in the context of worship with, with immense respect out of whoever these families are here, 
they certainly deserve more than to be simply used as a sermon illustration, right? But I, I hold them up before us because their pain and suffering, I think, is the level of what the, the Hebrew writer is trying to demonstrate was in the heart of God. And what's even most profound on this image is this woman in the center of the picture is, has just recently been ashed. She has presumably gone to an Ash Wednesday service sometime around noon or in the afternoon, right? Where she heard those words. Remember that you're dust, and to dust we all return. And a woman whose legs give out and who is being held up by another who suffers. And this is the level of anguish that I, that I attempt to, to feel along with them that, but cannot. And I attempt to feel as I read this text, but can only come barely close enough that in the heart of God there was this grief when God looked out over all that it had become. And many will say at that point, well, hang on. Where is God when these kind of things happen? And throw the picture back up, Graham, for just a moment. Where is God? I think God is right there. I think that's exactly where God is. If, it's, if I could be presumptuous enough to speak about where God is in the midst of suffering, none of us have that answer. None of us do. And those who do brandish answers very quickly need to be held in suspect. But I, I get the impression that when we suffer, that right there is exactly where God is. Holding up another. God is like this grief-stricken woman holding up one who is barely strong enough to stand. And some will say, well, but doesn't that make God look weak? Doesn't that make God look weak? They're grieving God. No, it doesn't make God look weak. It makes God look present and here and real. Do we not follow a risen one who we say became flesh and dwelt among us and was crucified for our transgressions? Because that can also look kind of weak. But you and I know better that weakness sometimes masquerades. Strength sometimes masquerades, and we who are followers of Jesus recognize that it's in the weakness, in the suffering, in the vulnerability of life, in the scars, in the woundedness of life, where God always shows up and says, I am here, I will not leave you orphaned. Amen. Yes. So what is the point of this whole first section when we're talking about grief? It's this, that God is not out to destroy you, but rather God is out to transform you. It's not that when we live outside of the vision of God, it's not that it incites God's wrath only. It's not just that it incites God's wrath, but rather it breaks God's heart. That it breaks God's heart. Can you hear the sirens for a minute? And hear some ambulance down the road. Listen. Yes or no, can you hear that? God can too. And is currently in route somewhere. So the first word that moves us through this sermon is grief. The second word is regret. 
It's regret. Listen to the words as the text continues. And the Lord was sorry that he made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created. People together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. God looks out and is regretting everything that has taken place, that has already transpired. Have you ever, have you ever made something with all of your heart and it unraveled and you, you, you come to the place where you kind of wish you didn't even start it? Notice the interesting progression of the text. It says here that, that God decides to blot out. That's the language of an artist and a canvas. And something goes wrong in the canvas and the artist wants to blot it out and start all over again. But notice the order of things. I will blot out the humans, the animals, the creeping things, the birds, which if you pay attention is a direct reversal of the order in which they were brought onto the stage in chapter 1. In chapter 1, God created the birds and then eventually there became the creeping things and then eventually the animals and then eventually the humans and now God is in the act of uncreating the world. Later in just a moment, we'll read a tragic moment where God even takes back the breath that God had given. But even here, there is a glimmer of hope in the midst of regret because in this great sea of regret that God has when God looks over all that God has made and has seen it just unravel, there is this one line that gives hope. It reads, but Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. God looked over everything that was worthy of regretting and saw one thing worthy of saving. What would it look like if you and I learned how to do something like that? What would it look like if you were to come to the edge of where you are and the thing that has happened, whatever it is that has unraveled, whatever relationship or job opportunity or deal or project, whatever the relationship or friendship, whatever it may be, you're looking over the thing that's unraveling and you see 999 reasons for this thing to be regretted. Is it possible for you to focus on the one thing that is still worth pouring your life into? What would it look like? if you learned how to look at the one worthy thing. So yes, the marriage is in trouble, but there's that one thing. Yeah, the kids are going through a thing and the grades are down and I don't know what's happening or where they are right now mentally and emotionally, but there, there is this one thing and I just can't, there's one thing here. <laughs> And the job, I can't muster the energy to get up on Monday morning, it's becoming so wearisome, but there is that there is that piece to it that what if you could look at the one worthy thing and God looked and found the one worthy thing and poured God's self into it, which then makes of this story not a story of destruction, but one of rescue. That's the next word here, but, but before we get there, can I just tell you a story? I'm talking to a friend of mine earlier this week, Doc Hollingsworth. You know, many of you may know Doc Hollingsworth. He's a senior pastor at Second Ponsilly in downtown. And he and I uh, talk together and catch up with each other, and he was telling me a story about a time that was very dark in his life. I asked his permission to share this, and he gave it to me. He said, I'm an open book. 
There was a period of time when he was working as an associate pastor at a church and the church went through a split. And, and because they went through the split, the, the, the budget could not afford his position as an associate pastor and he had to leave and it was, it was under great circumstances. Everyone loved one another, but they just simply couldn't afford him. And now he was jobless. And he had a wife and he had two toddler twins. And he was forced to move into the basement of his parents' house. And they had to live there for a while and he could not find employment and he tried everywhere. He looked everywhere he could, doing the things you do, working the network that you work to try to, to, to connect with, with opportunities for work. And then one day he got a phone call. It was from a friend of his, uh, Jim Manley. He was a retired pastoral counselor. Some of you may know Jim. And Jim was kind of a mentor to Doc and they called him up because it was Doc's birthday. He was turning 30 years old. He was an old man. And they called him up to say, happy birthday, old man. How are you? And he said, I'm not well. And Doc went on to say, I am probably at the lowest point I've ever been in my life. I don't have a job. I can't provide for my two kids. My wife, I have to live in the basement of my father's home. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. I've never been this low. And Jim said, okay, well, let me see if I have heard you right. What you're saying is you, so what you're saying is you, you've, you've got two toddlers who have no health problems. Is that what you're telling me? And you have a wife who trusts you and loves you and is present with you. And you have parents who have welcomed you in. And you have a dad who understands and gets it because these things happen. You, you, you got all that? Well, Good grief, boy, all you ain't got's a job. <laughs> the phone will ring. And then he went on to say these words. The truly tragic stories can't be fixed with a phone call. When God looks over all that was tragically worth his regret, he saw something that changed the perspective of everything that had gone wrong. And we're introduced to the God who is a rescuing God. Which moves us to the next word in our series is not only grief and not only uh, re regret, it moves us to rescue because now this story is not a story about the destruction of the world. This story is a story about rescue from a world of destruction. When I was talking to Doc, before we hang up the phone, he said, hey, what are you doing Sunday? What are you, that means, in preacher talk, that means, what are you preaching? What are you saying Sunday? I said, Noah, the flood. He said, ah, not exactly the kind of uh, fairy tale that we make off, is it? He said, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't quite match the, the pretty pastel borders we put in our nurseries, does it? With Noah, cute Noah, with the animals and the head sticking out, so cute. He said, Disney didn't do the Noah story. I said, no, truth be known, if the Noah story were truly being made into a real film, it wouldn't be by Disney. It would be by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Hardcore. Truth, there is violence and there is heartache and suffering in this. But the truth is, it is a rescue from that kind of world. So that's why we have great details about the, the construction of the ark, which read this way. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. The width, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And um, Put the door of the ark on its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks for shuffleboard when it gets long. And, and make, for my part, I I'll just see if you're listening along. For my part, I will, I am going to bring a, a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, you, and your sons' wives, with you and, and, and everything living, every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kind and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every kind shall come into, into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the God had commanded him. Now, what's interesting to me about this part of the text, about rescue, about rescue is this. When he's giving instructions about what to load into the ark, we have a couple of different embarkation stories. Earlier in the text that we read earlier, it's bring two of everything. In this version, which may be an earlier or a different source, it's bring seven of this kind and seven of that kind, right? There is the instruction to bring both clean and unclean animals, which is curious to me. That even in the midst of redoing creation, God provides for both clean and unclean the freedom of choice once more. But what's fascinating to me as you, as you look at the content of what goes into the ark is this. You got the birds, you got the creeping things, you got the animals, you got the humans, and you got the food. It's almost as if God is taking a little bit of everything that was in Eden and making a floating garden to replant. You know, yesterday we were doing budget with my family. It's always a fun day. And Laura says, I want you to, to budget for next month a, a little bit of money for some, some uh, soil and some plants. And here's what's going to happen. In a couple of weeks, we're going to go to Home Depot and get the thing that you get, and you come home, and then we go to one pot, and we dig up some old stuff, because it's still alive under there, you know. And we're going to transport it to another pot, and we're going to put it in this other pot, and we're going to lay it down, and we'll put some new soil around it, and dig it, and kind of cultivate it, and, and so that it will live again. It's repotting the soil, and it occurs to me that that's kind of what's going on with this floating Eden. 
that God is seeing something worth the rescue. We say when God looks out and he sees the one good thing among all the things that he regrets, we say it's, it's Noah, it's the one good thing. But maybe it's not Noah at all. Maybe the one good thing that he sees among everything is the possibility of rescuing not just Noah, but rescuing the vision of creation itself. And God transplants the vision of creation itself, and on a floating garden, transplants it so that it may be repotted, resoiled in a new creation. Do you know, I, I think that's why in 2 Corinthians, you and I read things like this. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Anytime any one of us opens up our life to the love of God, it's as if God repots the kingdom of God in the heart of each new believer. Because we are living in a world of flood, we are living in a world that is deluged with hate and bigotry and racism and division and violence. And yet in the heart, of every believer, God has transplanted his vision for creation and the kingdom and life and existence. And Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians. He said that for in you, we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. In other words, in you right now abides the treasure of Christ who is our ark. And that means that each of us, when we sail away from this campus, in many ways, we are many arks housing within us the very rescue of God's vision of creation. And those who have welcomed Christ into their hearts, we carry this treasure with us, this invaluable treasure that we didn't put there, but God put there so that in the midst of the flood, when the waters recede, we plant words of compassion. We plant acts of mercy. We plant forgiveness and grace and reconciliation and peacemaking. We plant it so that in this garden that we call our common existence, we might be able to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Somebody, somewhere, say amen. Amen. Yes. So there is grief and there is regret and there is rescue. But there's one more word. Reset. Listen to how the story continues. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are a righteous man, before, righteous before me in this generation Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air also, male and female, to keep their kind alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. He had come to the place where he was blotting 
it all out. Hmm. Sometimes you just have to start over. You know, when we were in Orlando, we were driving down the road, and it was at the time, years ago, before we had an iPhone, we had these what were, what were called flip videos. Did anybody have a flip video? It's a little device, and you just hold it up, and you, you hold the button, and you can make a video. It's a flip video. It's kind of a, you don't see them anymore, really. I don't. But we got one because we like to make videos, and so we, we were driving down the road, and it was broken, so at a stoplight, I, I was looking at it, and and saying, this is frustrating, it's not working, it's not, it's, it's, something's messed up, it's frozen. And Laura said, let me try it, so she tried it, she said, I can't get it. I took it back, I, I can't get it either. Well, in the back seat was um, the third grade version of my 16-year-old Nathan. Third grade. And said, let me try. And I says, okay, buddy, I got this. I'm trying. I'm doing all the troubleshooting that I could think of. He said, can I try? And Laura's like, let him try. So I hand it back to him. We go. A few seconds later, a second, he hands it back, and it's fixed. I said, what did you do? He said, it just needed a hard reset. Third grade. And in that moment, it occurred to me that I am a digital immigrant and he is a digital native, all right? But the truth is, sometimes you just got to turn it all the way off and turn it all the way back on. And I think that's what God was doing in this text. It's, it's, we got we, we to reset. We got to reset all the way off. And it makes me wonder, is there some part of your journey, your life, that needs to be reset? What part of you is able to, to rise up and speak to your sense of soul and say, look, there's one thing worth hanging on to. We're going to do that. We're going to camp. We're going to pitch our tent here. We're going to build an ark around this one thing that's worth preserving. But over here, this other piece needs to be reset. Need to be cleansed. And need to start over. Because wherever it is that you may be, do you realize that in our faith, it's less complicated than we think. We come to a place where we say to God, Lord, I, I recognize that when you look over my life, you must be filled with regret because I know I am. But I also know, Lord, that when you look over my life, you see more than what grieves you. You see something maybe that I, even I can't see. You see something that is worth preserving. Otherwise, you would not have sent your son to die and suffer for me upon the cross. And so you see something that I don't see. Help me see it. But I do know that in these areas, I need a complete reset. And I, I pray that you would help me to yield before you. I am sorry. I repent. I change my mind about what I thought mattered. Because now only you matter. That's the prayer. And maybe you pray it today. Let's take just a moment and go to the Lord in prayer, even now as we commit to Christ. Good Lord, we, we, we stop for just a moment, we, to long enough to consider all that we have heard and all that we have, have considered in your text and as your spirit is moving in us and among us, we, we stop long enough to, to confess that you, 
You must be disappointed, grieved. You must be heartbroken over what we have done with your vision of creation. But we also believe deeply that you see one thing worthy and sent your son to rescue it. Will you show us how to live into that mystery? And for those who feel lost today, for those who feel feel broken and, and perhaps do not know which way to turn, we pray that there may be freedom today, liberation. We pray that they may find the kind of hard reset that the soul requires, beginning even right now. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.